0: Greetings, church. My name is Jason, one of the pastors and elders at Church in the Square. Please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. We will be in three verses today, Romans 8, 9, and 10. And I'd like to get straight to it um, by reading the text and then praying and going from there. So Romans chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, reads this way. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we completely submit ourselves before you. We are weary, we're grieved, we're angry, we're sorrowful, we're frustrated. There are so many different things and emotions that really make up a week and so however we have faced those these past few days father we come to you now and ask for your help we come to you in a number of different ways as as the church and yet we come to the same place as your people to your word and so shape us we pray correct us we pray search us know us purify us of a guilty conscience lead us in the way that you desire father individually and as the church help me god help me to be in this moment hearing your voice responding listening speaking with clarity and with truth and humility father help me Help me to serve my brothers and sisters well. And may we as your church, Father, may we be obedient to your word. Would you by your spirit somehow even change the composition of our souls as we hear you you proclaim your goodness, your grace, your power, your worth, and your beauty over us. Oh God, we need to hear from you today. We're desperate for it. And so, God, may we come to your word. May we be changed by it. May we be transformed. May we be encouraged. May we be empowered. May we, in some measure, become more of who you've called us to be today. That we might be useful for your kingdom purposes today and tomorrow, the weeks and months to come. Oh, God, have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In April of 1963, a group... Of white pastors of eight white pastors and rabbis wrote a letter to Dr. Martin Luther King and they called this a uh, call to unity this letter and in it they described Dr. King as an outsider and encouraged him to sort of cease and desist his protests and his demonstrations for Uh, civil rights and against racial inequalities for the sake of racial reconciliation. And uh, Dr. King, of course, was not alone. And so they told him and all those who were with him in this letter that they should instead of protesting and doing the demonstrations that they were, instead they should simply go through the legal system. If a true injustice, they said, had taken place, then you will find lawful ways of seeking justice. Through the courts. Of course, the problem in those days that the corpse, the courts rather, were just as corrupt. And so in response, Dr. King pens one of his most famous pieces of writing known as Letters from a Birmingham jail, in which Dr. King wrote this, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Suffice to say, Dr. King disagreed with those eight clergymen and did not stop the fight nor the method of his fight. This may seem extraordinary. And like we often do, we may, we may think, wow, I can't believe that, that pastors, spiritual leaders could have said something like that or, or done something like that back then. Back then. Yet, here's what I think we, we need to come to terms with as a church, as a, as a country, as a church family. Yet in 2018, the same year that marked fi- the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, a collection of 4,000, over 4,000 pastors signed a different letter this letter was what they call the statement on social justice and the gospel. And in that letter, they said, We reject any teaching that encourages racial groups to view themselves as privileged oppressors or entitled victims of oppression. While we are to weep with those who weep, we deny, they write, that a person's feelings of offense or oppression necess- necessarily prove that someone is guilty of of sinful behavior, oppression, or prejudice. Additionally, they wrote, we emphatically deny that lectures on social issues are as vital to the life and health of the church as the preaching of the gospel and the exposition of scripture. The letter later called these social issues distractions. So what, what took place in the minds of these 4,000 or so pastors just a couple of years ago, which likely still persist in their hearts and minds today, albeit for the grace of God, what's taking place in that mind, what's taking place in their collective consciousness is that the gospel is being divorced, being separated from these social issues. See, decades later, removed from the civil rights movement of the 60s, many who claim the name of Christ still vehemently oppose the immediate implications of racial reconciliation and justice. And let's just make sure we're not throwing stones here. Let's make sure that we realize and see ourselves in this. We may not have signed a letter, but we too can be complicit in divorcing the proclamation of the gospel from the reconciliation of men and and women one to another, which takes place at the behest and the power all connected to the implications of the gospel therefore we cannot pull these things apart and yet we still do this we see the gospel and the preaching of the gospel and the work of the gospel as something as a matter for the church and the christian but these social issues as mere secondary issues and not gospel issues in and of themselves so i want to help us today by god's power by god's grace i want to help us to see why this matters and what effect this sort of church history and church present has on our lives today. See, in modern evangelicalism, the church has become hyper-individualistic. I don't know if you've noticed, but we have. Um, And many of us perhaps even hesitate by saying we, along with evangelical, because some have even begun to detach themselves from that kind of modern title of the faith. See, what this has meant for ministry is that personal salvation and perhaps even maturation personally or individually becomes central to the church and the offerings of the church and the programs of the church. We desire to see men and women come to know Jesus, love Jesus, follow Jesus, that their souls would be converted, that the lost would be saved, that the dead would uh, be raised to new life. And to all of this, of course, we say yes and amen. People need to believe the gospel and learn about the gospel. While this is the truth, the implication of the gospel, that Jesus lived, that he died, that he, he was buried, that he rose, that he ascended. While it's true that we need to come to a personal ascent of this, understanding that personally, believing that personally, is not the fullness of the gospel nor the gospel's implication. See, this This hyper-individual spirituality and personalization of my faith has calcified into a church that responds to cultural moments like we are in right now, like we're in right now, simply with prayers and Bible study, simply by throwing verses and perhaps verses of hope, but hope often that simply points to the age to come, but not to this life, not to the immediate implications of the gospel. Because often in this kind of faith, in this kind of evangelicalism, whatever is happening out in the world is really more about me than it's really even about what's happening in the world. We see this even in global ministry, that the service or the mission that we may be on merely is to save individual lost souls, which again is so key, so important. Yes, we hope for this. Yes, we work for this but it is an incomplete gospel we believe in if we only believe that the lordship of Jesus has bearing in the age to come and not in our present time. See, knowing that Jesus is Lord changes not only the destination of our soul, but the implication of our soul right here and right now, not just in the age to come, but in our current age. See, he is a king with a kingdom that is invading this world Right now, there is a cosmic restoration of all things that is taking place in intricate detail at the name and behest and power of Jesus, which is both visible and invisible. It is at work against the principalities and spirits of this dark and evil age, but it's also alive and well in the feeding and the clothing and the helping and the loving of neighbor as myself. See, there's a kind of faith, kind of Christianity, which I see vividly sort of taking place in the wake of the deaths of Breonna Taylor and of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and, the, and the, the host of other racial inequalities and injustices, which have still persisted up until our present time. See, I think many of us who are white are embarrassed by the white church of the 60s Many who are black and people of color may be angry at the white church of the 60s, and we together be, are, are angry and are ashamed of the white evangelical church that we may see today. Therefore, when it comes to our response, and here's what we must be careful of, in our current cultural moment, we often cling to visible impulses of justice and of action. We desire action and not merely words because action seems to be what our white predecessors have lacked and our white contemporaries lack they draft letters and they work prose but they will not love their neighbor as god in christ has loved them and so we want to be moved to action this is good this is an important impulse however in doing so in clinging and and really in abandoning many of the things that come with our faith. In order to move towards action, we inadvertently leave behind what makes us truly a force for kingdom change in this moment, and it's God himself. We must be so careful to keep our Lord in focus as we desire to respond to injustice around us. See, our faith Though this is what it seemed like and perhaps what it seems like around us, our faith is not meant to be an escape from what we experience. It's meant to be a lens by which we understand and and through which we respond to what we experience in this life. See, prominent civil rights leaders knew this. See, as one of Dr. King's biographers put it, he said that prayer was King's secret weapon in the civil rights movement. His Uh, profundity in prayers publicly, but his consistency in his personal and private prayers, both of which Dr. King and those in his inner circle, many of whom were clergy and committed followers of Christ responding to the impulses of their faith. See, I want to draw our attention today particularly to prayer because in God's sovereignty, this is where the text takes us. And even as I consider that of taking our church, of walking our church through a particular passage of scripture that talks about prayer, I know that in moments like these, we think that prayer is the opposite of taking action. In fact, isn't it true that in recent years, in responding to whether it's racial injustices or or, uh, mass shootings at schools or at malls, that we we grow tired of somebody on social media simply saying things like thoughts and prayers. And this kind of thing being viewed as, as passivity, particularly spiritual passivity, as well as a kind of Uh, response to it that is more head and heart and emotional, but not willing to risk through action and taking steps of faith and taking uh, steps of seeking justice and becoming anti-racist. But we must be so careful in the middle of all of this to not abandon prayer. Prayer is a power that God has given us as his people in a particular way to take action. See, this is what I want to consider today. I want to consider the spiritual activism of prayer. To consider with you today, today I want to look at, I want to talk with us about prayer and why it is action. Why prayer is a kind of action, but an action perhaps that we may not initially understand or see. See, up until this point in Romans, again, Paul has, has, uh, has now ended his greeting. He's introduced himself. He's introduced Christ. He's given us a clear Christology or an understanding of who Jesus is, an explanation of his nature. And then he has, as we've considered last week, he's he's spoken to us, his readers, about who we are, that we are beloved by God, that we're called by God, that that we are saints of God. He's given us this real strong foundation of who we are to understand, understand ourselves to be as followers of Jesus. And today, with this identity in mind, Paul moves into his longing to be with his brothers and sisters those who are in Rome. See, though Paul knows people in Rome, he's never been there. And yet he has heard about their faith and, and he has been begun praying for the church in Rome. In telling his readers then about that he has been praying for them, Paul is going to uh, directly, though maybe inadvertently, teach us about prayer. Look at verse 8. We'll, we'll begin here, and what, what Paul is going to be teaching us here are three different things that I want to walk us through so that we see the active nature and the powerful nature and the working nature of prayer. He's going to tell us about the personality of prayer, he's going to tell us about the power of prayer, and he's going to tell us about the point of prayer. The personality, the power, and the point. And, but, but first, before we get to those three, I think there's an important, relevant excursus from those to consider this very first word that Paul uses. Look at verse 8, Romans chapter 1. He begins by saying, first. Now this may seem completely unspectacular, or I'm not sure if that's a word, but something that's very unimpressive. I, I know that's a word, but, but it's actually incredibly fascinating that Paul begins with this word first tells us, or at least it causes us to believe that he's about to list something. He's going to say, first, and then he's going to say second, and he's going to say third, that he's going to have this compendium of ideas, this list of ideas that he's going to extrapolate and teach us from. But he actually doesn't do that. If you look at the rest of the chapter, in fact, you can look at the entire uh, rest of the letter, he never says second, and he certainly never says third. He never goes on to list. The list is actually not there. So why? Why is this the case? Well, It may be that through the way in which that Paul is writing Romans, that he's dictating to a secretary, that it made it very difficult to edit or to go back and make those kinds of corrections in sort of the form that they were writing this letter would have made editing less smooth than perhaps it would be today if we just press backspace or select and delete. Uh, And so the way perhaps that they were writing made it problematic. But I, I think more what takes place is that Paul actually gets passionate when he's speaking. Because remember, he's moving into this longing, this heartfelt desire to be with the people of God. And like you and me, that when our hearts are awake and when we grow alive to something that we're talking about, the sort of order and system and systematic way, perhaps that we're thinking through something or even talking about something, we sort of lose it. We lose ourselves, if you will, in the moment. See, I think that Though this is a strong and sharp theological treatise, Romans, it's also a letter written out of love from a pastor, from a spiritual leader to a flock. This is an important place to begin. See, much of our prayer, or perhaps our routine of prayer, becomes just that, routine and obligatory. Paul's prayer, though, conversely, is coming out of love. It's coming out of deep affection, not only so, but I think some of us, myself included, like in general, it's not just our prayer life. In general, we have a really hard time with a lack of structure, a lack of real systematic clarity. It's unnerving to us. We may think Paul ought to be orderly. This is the way that I learn. That I can see one, two, three. These are the, this is the pathway that Paul is supposed to follow, and it could sort of unnerve us. In fact, maybe we think this is this is orthodoxy. This is what it means to be religious and righteous. This is what the Bible is supposed to be. Supposed to be clear. It's supposed to follow the systematic process. Yet, as one uh, preacher expounded on this single word and Paul's lack of. Uh, complete structure here in Romans chapter one. He said, I wonder whether the greatest trouble in the Christian church today is that we are slaves to decorum. We are so polite. We are so dignified. We are so nice. We are so afraid, he says. See, our spiritual experiences can be so controlled. They can be so orderly that it won't mess with our spiritual feelings or unnerve our spiritual expectations. See, if someone is operating outside of our spiritual expectations and our comfort zones, then we start to get really nervous and uncomfortable. And then we start saying things, well, that just wasn't really my style. That's not what I could really relate to. I couldn't really connect with the message, didn't really connect with that song. We are saying essentially that the flow of something, the order of something often is not in the way that we like to grow spiritually. And so the great preacher, is not wrong we are so polite we are so dignified we are so orderly that we never give ourselves over to the emotions and the passions of our heart and the affections that we ought to have for our lord we stay tucked in polished complete tidy and have this sort of curated imperfection about us that says yeah i'm messy but i do my messiness in the exact right and perfect way paul is overtaken with passion and love for the people Paul will teach us much about prayer through this love, through this affection that he has for his people. With this in mind, Paul begins with thanksgiving. Look at the the first portion there, verse 8. Again, it says, First, I thank my God. Unlike what Paul has done in the previous verses, here Paul is not telling his readers about themselves per se. Rather, he is telling his readers that he is praying to God for them. He is praying to God thanking God for these men and women. And his prayer is one of thanksgiving. Therefore, it's not a stretch to understand that that prayer itself is a response to thanksgiving that we go to God out of thanksgiving, out of love, out of gratitude, we respond to God's generosity. Perhaps even this is part of the the passion that ought to be called out in us. Because If I may be so bold, I think this is one of the most sorely lacking disciplines within our prayer life, which in general is already lacking, I think, if we're honest with ourselves that we often don't go to God in prayer because we're not quite sure he actually exists or that really the things in my life he really has control of or the, the good in my life that he actually has bestowed upon me that perhaps I've worked hard and I have received that and therefore we don't go to God in prayers for thanksgiving. We kind of go to ourselves to thank ourselves and to be grateful that we are who we are. See, when, if we're convinced that we are the ones who have accomplished the good things in our life, we won't return to God in prayer, thanking him, praising him, giving thanksgiving to him for what he has done. See, Paul is going to God, thanking God for what's taking place in Rome because he knows that God did it. That God is the one who has done this great work in Rome and brought about this kind of transformation and gospel work in Rome See, when God has met our need, we are not simply to enjoy what he has done. We are to return in gratitude. This is what led Jesus to respond in Luke chapter 17 this way to uh, the idea, or rather the situation where he heals 10 lepers and only one comes back to thank him. And he asks the one who comes to him, he says, again, in Luke 17, we're not 10 cleansed Where are the nine? Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus seems to be suggesting and saying here that the fullness of his work and presence in our life takes full effect through thankfulness and praise, giving glory to God. That that the effectiveness and the power of what God is doing in us, through us, and around us in the world comes to its fullest expression when we return to God in thanksgiving and in glorifying him for what he has accomplished. So in Romans, Paul's gratitude takes him to prayer. He's giving credit and glory to God for all that he has seen, for all that he has heard in the Roman the the, the Roman church. And, and in doing so, he's following a sort of a plethora of psalmist commands, but, but one that comes to mind, Psalm one hundred. And seven, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So, Paul does. Thanksgiving is Paul's motivation for what he's about to unfold and the way that he is about to pray. But there's a deeper personality than simply thanksgiving. So, as we consider the personality of prayer, we'll continue to push into Paul's language here to understand exactly what's going on here. See, look more closely at what Paul says. It's incredibly unique for the way that Paul speaks about God. He says, I thank my God. He says, I thank my God. He uses this language in 2 Corinthians, Philippians a couple of times, and in Philemon. And in each case, Paul is using this kind of language of my God when he is referring and speaking about his brothers and sisters, and often in prayer, there is a softness in his voice, a tenderness, an intimacy, if you will, in considering the language that he uses when he says, my God, it's personal, it's possessive, it's relational. And I I believe that this, this tender way of speaking is what gives us a picture of what the personality of prayer is, or what this sort of texture and what this life and what this relationship is all about. The prayer is so personal because knowing God personally is at the heart of the new covenant. So one of the ways that we even enjoy what Christ has done for us is that we get to speak to the heavenly father. We get to speak with God with this personal and possessive language. See, Paul, in considering Exodus chapter 6 and Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 11 writes this in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is, this is incredible, this kind of ownership that, that God is saying through Paul goes both ways. This is the God who made galaxies. This is the God who not only made seas, but then he parts them. This is the God who heals the sick. This is the God who tells a corpse to get up from death and rise up to new life. And, and we get to say to him, we get to say about him, the God who does all of this and so much more, I know him. And what's more, he knows me. This is that kind of knowing that goes well beyond saying that I know data, I know facts, I know information. This is not the way that you know your favorite celebrity, that you know information about them that would be creepy if you ever met them to like speak back to them. Like, let me tell you about your children. Nice to meet you for the very first time. Not that kind of information, not that kind of knowing. It's a kind of knowing which is mutual. It's a kind of knowing which comes from exposure through relationship. It's a kind of knowing that has intimacy and communion and fellowship. We don't just know about him. We know him. We're in relationship with him. This same God, this very same God who is and has done all of these things, we can call this God, my God. This changes us. This transforms our prayers. I'd like to suggest to you that when we establish this possessive language at this particular time, it begins to transform us. We need to do this right now, church. We need to begin to pray in such a way where we're not just praying to a God who is out there and over us and in control, but a God who is my God, a God who is personal a God who is close, a God who is known and who knows us. It's a reminder of our dignity that is stamped upon us by his very spirit as those who bear his image. To say my God rewires our brain When we are trapped in self and in isolation and in loneliness and it establishes a true self-concept that we are sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father to say, my God informs the heart of its truest affection, the God of the Bible and him specifically. See, right now, we don't need religion. Right now, we don't just need nebulous faith. Right now, we don't need just some sort of general spiritual reassurance that helps prop up my emotions and my affectations. I need my God. I need the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I need the God of the Father whom Jesus knew and loved and followed and obeyed. We need my God. I need the God who shaped galaxies and hearts and invented photosynthesis and your heart and my mind and your body and my body. The God who saves humanity through the gift of his son. That God. Are you with me at church? I need my God. We need to call on my God. See, even the personality of prayer is a kind of action that begins to transform us by the renewal of our minds when we remind ourselves that we speak to a God who knows us and who we know. That's the personality of prayer. Now Paul shows us the power. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 8, continuing. First, I thank my God through... Christ Jesus for all of you, through Christ Jesus. See, the personality of God is this intimacy and this relationship that we have with God. But the union, this union that we have as humanity, between God and humanity, is enjoyed that's enjoyed through prayer has not always been so. See, sin separated us. This closeness was achieved through Christ. Therefore, we should not be surprised to discover that the power of, through which or by which Paul is speaking to God is through Christ. Paul says he thanks God through Jesus Christ, the one who establishes the relationship with God, the one who establishes the relationship, maintains the relationship. Through the blood of the Son, we are united with the Father and therefore through the mediation and the constant advocacy of of the Son, we are in constant and have constant access and communication with the Father. Jesus then has authority. as the one who has established this relationship. He has the authority to teach us about prayer. And in Matthew 6, he teaches us to pray. And he says, pray then like this, Our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Notice, notice again Matthew 6, this language of possession and of ownership and of intimacy this personality, our Father. But notice, and this is, this is key, we pray to the Heavenly Father. Paul prays to my God through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus does not instruct us to pray to God the Son, nor to God the Spirit. Rather, we are called, we are instructed, we are commanded even, to pray to the Heavenly Father, to be sure. We want to be careful. It's not some grievous, sinful offense if you pray to the Son, or to the Lord, because Paul does this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Three times he prays to the Lord, asking that he would remove the thorn in the flesh. Nevertheless, at a very practical level, if we are to allow our, our, our minds to be shaped and sharpened by the word of God, that our hearts would be rightly awoken to his spirit, then we ought to pray in the way that Jesus has instructed us to, and he instructs us to address the Father, And so when we pray, we not only say our Father or or, my God, this is whom we pray to, but also we conclude our prayers with saying in Jesus' name, or like Paul, through Jesus Christ, amen. This is because the power of our prayer, the authority of our prayer is not based on our words, but rather through the authority of the Son, Jesus Christ. It is not our authority that we possess personally. It is rather the authority that we possess by association with Christ. This is really good news by the way. You might say, wow, well, seems like I gotta go through somebody in order to talk to somebody else. That doesn't seem, you know, really helpful, but think about it. If we are coming to the Father based on the merit and righteousness of Christ, then no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how recently you have done it or have failed to do it, no matter how much sin, how much shame, how much junk, how much evil, how much racism, how much prejudice, how much brokenness, how much hurt, how much pain is in your heart. We're not coming because of the condition we find ourselves in. We're coming on the merit, power, and righteousness of the Son of the living God. Therefore, we always have access to the Father. Therefore, we are always received by the Father based on the righteousness of Christ, not whatever disposition we may find ourselves in that particular day. That is good news. We pray to the Father through the Son. And why is it this way? turn to Romans chapter 5. Let's get a preview. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. This is why we pray and why we have access and why we are able to address the Father through the Son. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Peace with God is made possible through the Son, Jesus Christ. Peace is what we lacked because of our sin. We did not have peace with the Father. Sin caused conflict, consequence, and separation from the Father. This is because of our sin. And our sin is always an affront to the love and the glory of God the Father. So without Christ, we don't have peace. The only way we achieve peace is if we deal with sin. The obstacle that was between us and the Heavenly Father was our sin. And so, it must be removed. And Jesus, what does he do? He removes the obstacle. He tears down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus, through his blood, washes us clean, makes us pure, makes us holy, makes us beloved, makes us saints, calls us, as we read about last week. He deals with our sin, and then through the cross, draws us near, now we have access to the Father. See, if we have access through Christ, first, initially, how we are one is how we are kept The one who establishes the relationship maintains it. Therefore, through faith in him, Paul writes that we are justified in in Romans 5. uh, And and one of the blessings of this justification is peace with our heavenly father. Therefore, this is why the angels, when, when Jesus is born, proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with those in whom he is pleased. That means that our peaceful access to the Father by the person and work of the Son ought to lead us to continual prayer and prayer through the Son. This is so powerful. This is the power of our prayer. This is the type of prayer that actually is a kind of action, because Jesus now says in John chapter 15, or 14 rather, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Did you hear that kind of power, that kind of access, that kind of wealth of heaven Praying to the Father through the Son, through the person of God the Son, gives us access to the will and the work and the power of God who can do anything. Of my God who can do anything. Now this may seem, if we're not careful, like some simple way to get my will to be performed. But we've been changed. We've been changed by the personality of prayer that I've come to God based on his work, based on his invitation, based on the work of Christ. Therefore, something is taking place through prayer and certainly through the peace afforded to me through Jesus is that my will is being conformed to his. My desires are being conformed to the pattern of his heart. So there's been a transformation of me. So See, prayer is not me submitting my will to God and asking him to do it. Prayer is me submitting myself to God's will and asking that I would do it. Prayer is not me submitting my will to God and asking that he would do it. Prayer is me submitting to God's will and asking that he would help me to do it, do his will. Therefore, what we ask in the Father's will, he accomplishes. This is a true kind of power. So there's an intimacy that we have because of our covenant union with God. That's the personality. And there is this access that we have through the Son that is ultimately the power that we have in the name above all names, Jesus Christ which now leads us to the point. Look at verse uh, 8 through 10. Now we'll read the the whole passage here in Romans chapter 1. Flip back to the left. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. There are a number of things here which uh, not only explain why Paul is praying for the Roman Christians, but more broadly about the point of prayer as a whole. First notice that we see that Paul is praying because of your faith, he says, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. The point of Paul's prayer is that God is at work and Paul is celebrating that work. From the letter's context, we would be wise to understand that the type of faith and the type of faith that's being proclaimed all over the world is that that kind of faith that is an obedience which leads to faith and a faith that leads to obedience. The obedience of faith that he talked about in chapter 1 verse verse 5. Their reputation of believing and trusting in the Lord has become known well outside of their immediate context. But notice, Paul doesn't praise them. Paul is not saying, I'm so glad that you, and I'm so grateful for you, I'm so thankful for you, and so I'm going to tell you, though though that's helpful in certain situations, that kind of encouragement, what Paul is actually doing is he's thanking God because God is the one who gave them that faith. God is the one who has been at work in that faith. So rather, he gives glory to God in prayer, and he celebrates the faith that they have because faith has come from God. So the point of prayer is to celebrate the gracious acts of God. We must be doing this. As we look and see what God is doing, though there is much to be grieved, much to be lament, as we see God at work, as we see laws change that move with the ark of his redemptive and cosmic restoration. We we thank him, we worship him because our God is the invisible hand that guides all things. Our God is the one who sits in sovereignty and in providence over every single day of our lives and the existence of the world. And so we, we, we point to God, we glorify God in prayer that we might rightly give him glory for what he has accomplished. Secondly, what we see is that Paul is praying without ceasing. The point of Paul's prayer is to be persistent in mentioning his brothers and sisters to God. Paul seems to be practicing what he preaches in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he says, rejoice, always pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And in this, he is compelled by God's sovereignty over him and the gospel of Christ itself. Note, notice when he says this, when he says that he prays without ceasing in verse 9, he first says, for God is my witness. So God is watching over this. God is the one who is provident is providential over this, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you. In other words, the reason he is so faithful in prayer is because of God, because of his relationship with him. But there's something in this that can be easily missed. And I think if we read too quickly, we'll miss it in First Thessalonians 5 as well, that here Paul is suggesting that prayer is an action in itself that should not stop He prays without ceasing and he instructs the church in Thessalonica to pray without ceasing, to continue, to persist in this. Prayer is an action of the local church that must persist even as we take up other actions. See, as we seek justice, we should pray. As as we do acts of mercy, we should be praying. As we help care for the needs of our neighbors, we should also be praying for them. As we want to see laws changed in, in our country we should also be praying that those laws change and praying that god would make it happen as we pray for wisdom as we vote or as we go vote rather we should pray for for wisdom in the ways that we care for one another as even as we learn many of us as white followers uh, of jesus as we are reading new information trying to learn about what it means to be anti-racist we need to ultimately also be praying god change my heart i don't just need more information i need my heart to be transformed I need him to do a work in me. See, the point of prayer is that there's this type of persistent trust and cooperation with God through his will, that we're praying as we are also performing all kinds of other actions because prayer is an action. Thirdly, you see that Paul is praying with the intent of taking further action. I love this. I love this. This is so helpful for us, that, that his action and his desire to take action goes beyond the prayer. This is not him just like hashtagging thoughts and prayers and then moving on. The point of Paul's prayer is that he would be equipped, he would be enabled to make his way to Rome according to the will of God, to be with those whom he is writing. See, often when we come to prayer, we ask God to act, don't we? We ask God to do something. And this is good and it's right because he can do anything and we always want to lay up our supplications and our requests to him. He can do what no one else can. But Paul is also praying in order to receive guidance and empowerment so that he can take up action himself. Church, do you hear that? That Paul is praying not just so that God would do something, but so that he would be educated, that his heart would be motivated appropriately, that his heart would be centered on God's will and on the gospel and on the restoration that the Lord is doing, not only in Rome, but all over the world. Paul is asking that his heart would be aligned, that he would take appropriate action as well. He does not believe that God's power gives him license for spiritual laziness. And many of us, Use prayer as an escape clause from doing the justice that the scriptures call us to perform. Many of us even, I think, so, I think it's such a good place that we're coming from. The intention is there, but it is not informed by the wholeness of the gospel, nor the fullness of the scriptures, nor the heart of God. Prayer is not an escape from the church. It's a place where we are prepared to take action. We lament before God. We cry out to God who can do all things. But we say, Here am I am, my God, send me. Paul wants to go to Rome. He has an action in mind, but he doesn't want to take that action without going to God, being filled by the Spirit, and taking that action in a manner that the Lord desires. See, prayer. Church is not a denial of our spiritual responsibility. It is the place where we are informed of what our spiritual responsibility is. See, the point of prayer is seeking wisdom and spiritual power in order to take appropriate and righteous and God-directed action. Prayer is not an action, but prayer is not the only action we are called to take. We should not say thoughts and prayers with no intention of thinking and praying, nor should we say something like that with that kind of earthly sentiment as if we have no further responsibility. Yes, we pray. But when we pray, we also ask a question. God, what's your will for me? God, what are you calling me to do? God, what is it that you would have me do? See, in large measure, we go to the Heavenly Father through the Son in order to understand best what his will is for our lives. My life personally, our life as a church, his desire for our world holistically. See, sometimes what he says is, be still, know I'm God. Sometimes he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Sometimes he says protest, stand, fight. Sometimes he says you need to help change that law. Sometimes he says you need to vote. You haven't done it. You're not taking up this opportunity that I've given you in this particular country to educate yourself and to vote. Sometimes he's saying feed the hungry. Sometimes he, t- he tells us to seek and save the law. Sometimes he tells us to go and seek forgiveness. Sometimes he tells us to preach the gospel. Sometimes he tells us to live it out. Sometimes he tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. The question is, are we listening? Are we coming to him in prayer and listening and asking through his word that he would illuminate the scriptures and make clear for us what we are called to do as a people, as a person, individually and corporately. If we will ask and listen, the father through the son, he will tell us how we ought to live, what we ought to do. And in this, we are taking up action. What I'm trying to say is this, is that prayer is less an opportunity for us to make our desires known to God. And it is much more an opportunity to ask that our desires would become aligned with his. And that our desires would incarnationally take upon action. Prayer is not simply... Asking God to do something, but submitting ourselves to God, assuming that God's response will include our submission, obedience, and action. This all comes through the personality of prayer, this union with God, that He's my God, this power of prayer through the Son, that we have this kind of authority given to us, bestowed upon us, and found in Christ. And the point of prayer ultimately that we would be transformed and that we would be used by God to bring about transformation in our world. See, prayer is this kind of spiritual activism that I think we are, if we're not careful, we will lack because of, I think, an important impulse to learn and to grow and to read and to listen to diverse voices. But this kind of action is the way we wage visible and invisible war. We are transformed as we cry out to my God. We are empowered as we go to him through Christ Jesus. And then we are sent out into the world knowing whose we are and knowing who empowers us and who is with us. And so as we learn, let's also pray. As we protest, let's also pray. As we repent, let's also pray. As we vote, let's also pray. Prayer like it was for Dr. King and those who labored many years ago. May we labor in the same fashion, taking up the action of prayer as our secret weapon to not simply see men and women come to know and love and follow Jesus, that souls would be converted, but that cosmic restoration, that heaven would invade earth right now. This is what we pray. That the things to come would show up in our time. That the age to come would more and more be reflected in the will and pattern of God's people. what god promises to do that he would accomplish now are you with me this is what we pray this is what we ask for come lord jesus come we know one day that you're coming back but right now would your power would your will would your might would your love would your grace would your compassion would your equity would your justice would your righteousness would it rule and reign in this place right here right now Would the naked be clothed? Would the thirsty find water? Would the hungry find nourishment? With those who have been victims of racism, feel your comfort and your love. With those who have been willfully complicit, bow the knee, seek forgiveness and repent. May we be reconciled as a people. God, we pray for this. We ask for this. We ask all of it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus that you would send us, that you would empower us, that you would equip us, that you would help us, that you would do this work, but that graciously by your spirit, you would do it in us and through us for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.